0: Our uh, speaker this morning is certainly no stranger to this school, um, however, he may not be someone that uh, many of you have met or known or have has had uh, teach a class. Um, Dr. Stan Fowler is uh, he actually retired last year um, but is still uh, holds the title of professor emeritus at this school and teaches um, some courses still in the seminary. Um, Dr. Fowler has been a part of well even going back before Heritage was ever um, a school. Um, He taught at Central Baptist, which is one of the schools that helped form Heritage. Um, And he began teaching there 38 years ago. Um, So he has taught many courses, he has ha- held uh, many different titles. If I list all the titles he held, we'd probably run out of time in chapel. Um, and has uh, definitely been a service to the school, um, but also a service to many churches in the area as well. Helped them work through difficult issues. And uh, is when I think of someone who is wise, um, I definitely, Stan would be, uh, Dr. Stanfowler be right at the top of that list, um, especially when it comes to many of the difficult issues that uh, we face in the church and uh, in our society. And uh, he's given a lot of thought to a lot of different issues and uh, has helped me even. Um, I remember moral theology in uh, my seminary. I'm definitely one of the more difficult courses that it took, but uh, it was definitely one of the more thought-provoking, and I really appreciated the, uh, the way in which Dr. Fowler allowed us to think through certain issues. So I pray this morning that you're blessed through his ministry as he comes and shares with us this morning.
1: Um, Professor Emeritus means really old. That that's, uh, that that's the basic uh, essence of it, I think. But it's great to be with you as an old guy, uh, with you who are not so old, and, um, and to give praise to our Lord together, even without words on a screen. Uh, that, was, that was well done. I, I still remember the experience, even though it occurred over 40 years ago, Saturday morning in 1977. It's in the late Middle Ages. It's my, um, my last year of pastoral ministry in Bloomington, Indiana. And I, I spent a whole Saturday morning along with one other pastor, one of my best buddies in town, um, dialoguing with a man named Ralph Blair. You probably don't know Ralph. Ralph uh, studied at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary and Westminster Seminary and after his theological studies, he, um, he created a ministry in New York City uh, called the Homosexual Community Counseling Center. Also started an organization called Evangelicals Concerned to, um, to cause evangelicals to think about homosexuality. I know what you're thinking, and you've got it all wrong. Ralph was, during his uh, theological studies and and during those ministries, and to this day, um, practicing homosexual. It was a fascinating Saturday morning. uh, As I talked with the guy who studied at schools like that, and who's a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, so every year he affirms his commitment to biblical inerrancy. But he argued then, and he argues still, that that the Bible, taken as a whole, properly interpreted, actually is friendly toward faithful same-sex relationships. A very unforgettable morning. And during that discussion, at several points, uh, Ralph said to my, my buddy Dave Ferris and me, Look, I'm not the one who's disobeying Christ here, you are. Because Christ said, Don't judge, don't be judgmental. And, and and you're judging me. So I'm not really the one who's disobedient. I think you are. That was a fascinating conversation. And what Ralph said to us that morning, several times, has been repeated over and over by many different people in many different places, and it now sometimes gets used against uh, faithful Orthodox churches in our own cultural context, because now in contemporary Canada, the chief virtue is tolerance. Understood in a particular way, a distorted way, actually. I mean, traditionally, when we talked about being tolerant, um, we've, um, we've, we've used it along the lines of, it was Voltaire, French philosopher, who said, I disagree with you say, but I would defend to the death your right to say it. In other words, we've said, we we have serious differences at times, and we can express those honestly but we treat each other in a civil and respectful way. That would be the traditional, normal understanding of tolerance. But now, in contemporary Canada, tolerance is understood to mean I I must never express disagreement with anyone, with what they believe or, or the way they live. And so it gets used against believing Christians time after time after time. You must not judge. Jesus was said, don't be judgmental. You must not judge others. You must not speak negatively about what others believe or the way they live. So Christians in, in the political world are in a very difficult spot. More than one has, has been called a bozo eruption because that person actually was found to have said that they thought homosexual practice was a moral issue. and, and know that many of you are, are aware of, of the very recent issue surrounding Calvary Baptist Church in Oshawa, where they removed a woman from membership because um, she with, was living in a lesbian relationship and would not forsake it, but defended it. And so they removed her from membership, and so she went public with it. And Global News picked it up, and maybe others as well. The clip I've seen was from Global News. And, and in her quoted comments, among other things, she said, it, it's like they're judging me. And how could they do a thing like that? so did Jesus say do not judge well yes he did the words are in Matthew 7 1 which we're going to look at so I mean the words are there and they constantly get used in the way that I've described and so it's, it's right that we stop and ask well what does that mean for us I'm by the way, at the, the end of what I have to say, I think I, I, may, I may for once in my life stop talking soon enough to allow you to ask some questions. So I, that, that's my basic plan, just give you a bit of a heads up. First thing we need to, to recognize is what Jesus clearly did not mean when he said, do not judge, in Matthew 7.1. He clearly did not mean... You must never make a negative assessment and a negative statement about another person. He obviously did not mean that. Why? Well, think of it this way. In verse 6, just a few verses later, he says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Now, we don't have time to explore all the interpretive options about who the dogs and the pigs are. But I think it's fair to say all rational interpreters would recognize he's talking about some kinds of human beings. He's not talking about four-footed creatures. It's a figure of speech. But to obey what he says, we would have to make the assessment that some persons are the dogs or pigs, are in that category, And that's obviously a negative assessment. If you call someone a pig, that's obviously a negative. And for a first century Jew, to call someone a pig was doubly negative. And then down at verses 15 and 16, in the very same chapter, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. So he's saying to his disciples, you're going to have to be on the lookout for those who claim to speak for God, but speak falsely. And and you're going to have to look at the fruit of their teaching and their life and recognize them, which means you're going to have to make a negative assessment about those people and say they are false prophets and we need to beware. Now, those are the words of Jesus in the very same chapter. If you go beyond the words of Jesus to the teaching of his apostles that we find in the rest of the New Testament, you find the same sort of thing. In 1 Corinthians 5, for example, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about the need to discipline a particular member who's living in an incestuous relationship. And he says, you shouldn't be proud of your grace welcoming this fellow still in the church, what you need to do is remove him. And then at the end of the chapter, he broadens it all out beyond this one individual and says, look, I'm not telling you to remove yourself from from the unbelieving world. Not telling you to have nothing to do with unbelievers, but I am telling you, if someone claims to be a brother or a sister and, and lives in a flagrantly ungodly way, and he identifies some examples, have nothing to do with them. You remove them. In fact, he says, don't even eat with them. And at the end of the chapter, he says, God will judge the world out there, but you are called to judge those on the inside. And in case you're wondering, yes, it's the same Greek word that Jesus uses in Matthew 7. And as as Paul continues on into what we call chapter 6, he talks about one believer having a dispute against another. And he says, why take it before the civil magistrates? Why can't you appoint judges in the church to judge these cases? In fact, he even says to them, don't you know that that we will judge angels? Now, I, I bet when you hear that, you think, well, actually, I'd never thought about that. But apparently, Paul had had taught them about the fact that in the end, when Christ returns, when we reign with him and judge with him, we'll even some way judge angels. But if we're going to judge disputes within the church, we're going to have to say somebody is wrong. In 2 John, John writes to a church that's dealing with traveling false teachers who are teaching... Essential falsehoods, heretical teachings about Christ. And he, and he says to them, if, if one of those teachers comes, do not welcome them, do not extend Christian hospitality to them. So you're going to have to make a negative judgment about those persons and say to them, sorry, you're not welcome here as a Christian teacher. In 2 Timothy 4, when, when Paul encourages Timothy about his ministry of the word, he says, as you proclaim the word, you need to reprove, you need to rebuke and encourage. And he talks about the right way to do it, but included in what ministers of the word are to do is to rebuke. That means making a negative judgment and calling people to change. Change. In both 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul writes to his assistants, who, whom he's left in, in two different places, about the, the kind of criteria that people have to meet if they're going to be appointed to church office. So he says, if, if men are going to be appointed as overseers or elders, they, they have to meet some criteria. They have to be the right kind of people. And if all that's to be applied, then the church is going to have to say about some people with regret, you don't meet the criteria, a negative judgment. In Revelation 2 and 3, we have the words of the risen Christ to the church, seven churches in Asia Minor, and and at least five of them include significant rebuke a negative judging word from the risen Christ himself. But but here's what I'd like to do. I'd I'd like to be able to go back in time to the first century and and dredge up, resurrect from the dead, I guess we'd have to, bring up a bunch of people who actually heard Jesus, met Jesus, heard him teach, uh, observed his lifestyle, and ask them, was, was Jesus really a non-judgmental kind of guy? I'd, I'd like to, to dredge up a group called the Pharisees. Have you ever read Matthew 23? Jesus' words to the Pharisees, in which he tears several strips off of them for their hypocrisy manifested in various ways? Just imagine it. So, so we bring back a group of Pharisees and, and we set them down in here in our chapel and, and we say to them, look, it, the word on the street is that Jesus was a very non-judgmental guy who, who never said a negative word about people and told others, don't you say negative words about what other people believe or what they do. Is that the case? Tell, confirm it for us that Jesus was totally non judgmental. The Pharisees would die laughing at the thought that Jesus was placid and non judgmental and never said negative things about other people. I mean, I, I, I think I've showed you enough already for us to agree. Whatever Jesus meant when he said, do not judge, he did not mean you must never say anything negative about another person. You must never make a negative assessment of, what, of the way, way other people live or what they believe. Clearly did not mean that. Well, what then did he mean? Well, here's the point at which we remember it's amazing what you can learn when you actually read the text. So we ought to do that, do the radical thing. And and the first thing we notice is that he did not say, do not judge, period. It's not the end of the sentence. He said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words you will be held accountable to the standards of judgment that you use. Paul makes the point in Romans 14 that whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin and there he means whatever doesn't whatever we do that doesn't arise from a belief that what we're doing is actually right is sin. He makes the point in that chapter if if Things are, uncle- are clean in themselves, but if someone regards something as unclean that in fact is clean, if he regards it as unclean wrongly, but he does what he regards as unclean, then for him it is unclean. It is sin. We, God holds us to account to live up to our conscience, at least. I mean, our conscience may be wrong, but, but at the very least, we're held accountable to live up to it. So his point is, before you judge somebody else, you need, you need to stop and ask, am I really willing to live in a way that, that meets that standard? In other words, when Jesus says, do not judge, and finishes the sentence, do not judge or you too will be judged, he is saying, do not judge Hypocritically, which he goes on to explain in verses 3 to 5 with, with this um, hyperbole. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say, and let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite? Whoa that was judgmental language wasn't it? <laughs> you hypocrite first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye and so Jesus points to the fact that that we human beings are unfortunately very capable of finding faults in others really easily because the Fault already resides in us. So he puts it in these graphic terms. You 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 look at your neighbor and you say, you know, you you got a little you got a speck in your eye. I mean, I really should help you get that out. Let, let me work on that. All the while he says, you have a board in your own eye that somehow you you have a way of looking around or over, under, beyond somehow. And isn't it true in human experience that, that often, often people who become very vocal and critical of others on particular points actually have the same problem? Psychologists call that projection. The fact is we're easily oblivious to the way we really are. Now, I've learned that the hard way over the years. Um, I learned along the way that one of the reasons I could easily see the uh, sloppiness and and failure to keep their rooms clean of my sons was the shape my desk sometimes took. And my wife said to me, when was the last time you dusted your desk or your bookcase? Well, it was sometime this century, I can assure you. <laughs> I, one, of the, one of the ways I first learned it um, was, uh, was was back in seminary when I, when I took my first preaching course. I, my, my preaching professor at Dallas Seminary was Haddon Robinson, who, who became famous later on when he wrote his book, Biblical Preaching. Haddon was a wonderful guy, hadn't revolutionized my appreciation for the possibilities of preaching, hadn't hadn't helped me not become a cynic about the possibilities of preaching. I owe him a huge debt. He was here uh, for the, the very first of our Heritage Seminary preaching lectures back in 1995, and he came back around 2008 or 2009 gave the lectures again. When he came that second time, I introduced him. And he said, it's great to be back here at Heritage Seminary. Good to be with Stan Fowler. When I was a boy, my mother used to take me to hear him preach. He had a wicked sense of humor. <laughs> I love the guy. But but when he was talking in class about preaching and gestures, he said, One of the things you need to avoid is the holy triangle. Nervously standing at the front like this. (laughs) The holy triangle. And I thought, who would do that? And then, yeah, you know where it's going. And then, in a practice preaching experience, which was video recorded which I had to watch with Haddon, there I stood, preaching to the class, like so. <laughs> I had no idea that I, that I did that. Um, I've learned it in a few other ways over the years. We can be easily oblivious to our own faults and end up judging others very hypocritically because we don't live up to the standards we're applying to them. Now notice, Jesus does call us to help our brothers and sisters change. So he doesn't say, you must never try to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In fact, he says in verse 5, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. We are called to admonish one another. We're called to stimulate one another to love and good works. We're, we're therefore sometimes called to point out faults to one another. But first, we deal with our own. The fact is, hip, hypocrisy among believers, especially hypocrisy among those who are leaders in the church is a huge problem in the world and and a barrier to faith for a lot of people. Most of you are too young to remember the um, escapades of the mid to late 1980s regarding Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart you may have heard the names. Let's just say they were found out. And, and, and they were publicly known then as hypocrites. During that time, I remember one day in, in Toronto when I, I, took, I took our kids to the pedodontist, Dr. Geller. Dr. Geller was the most enthusiastic dentist on planet Earth. The kids loved him. That day, he, he came bouncing out to the waiting room and sat down beside me, and he said, so, so tell me, Stan, what is it about Swaggart and Baker anyway? I, actually, I said to him, there's a dentist in my end of the city who killed his wife and kids and then committed suicide. What is it with dentists anyway? But <laughs> then I, I, I said, look, I'm sorry. That was, that was unfair. You, I said, you, you have, You've hit a real problem. You touched a raw nerve. It's inexcusable. And they have to be disciplined. I'm embarrassed. Dr. Geller was a, kind of a secular Jew. And, and that did not attract him to the message about Jesus. In our own day, the whole world talks about the sexual abuse crisis in the Roman Catholic Church and what has been true of priests in too many places and the cover-up by people in very high places in the church. That's a big barrier for the gospel in our world. So the kind of hypocritical judging that Jesus is concerned about is something you and I do need to be concerned about. Wherever the church in the world exists, it exists in a particular cultural context with its own possibilities and its own challenges. In our contemporary Canadian context, one of the challenges we face is this new view of tolerance and the idea that it's, somehow it's always wrong to judge other people and speak negatively about them. That makes it very hard to declare that Jesus is the only way to God. Makes it very hard to publicly affirm traditional morality on many fronts, not just sexual. Makes it very hard. But we have to do it. We have to declare the truth. Now, there are two sides to it. And and the one side is, when we do judge, we must do it in a way that's sincere, not hypocritical, in a way that's loving and patient, a way that's humble, not in a smugly, self-righteous way. The Bible is very clear that we are to relate to the unbelieving world in, in a way that's full of grace, even as our Lord related to us. In grace. So that's one side of it. But still, we must judge. We must be discerning. We must be appropriately critical, but not in a hypocritical way. You see, people realize ultimately, I think, if pushed, that that the statement, do not judge, you must stop judging people, absolutely, is a self-defeating statement, because if I say to you, you must stop judging others, I am judging you for your words. I am judging you for what you do. We all judge, inevitably, necessarily. So I told you about what happened in 1977 with me and Ralph that Saturday morning. About must probably 10 years ago now or so, I, I was asked uh, by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada to write a blog post on their Christianity.ca website. And so I wrote one uh, on this theme Is it ever right to judge? In the first paragraph, I gave a very brief summary of that meeting with Ralph Blair in 1977. Over the space of a week, after it went off into cyberspace, I got emails from people around the world, the majority of them positive, some of them not so positive. But about a week after the the blog appeared, I looked at, I, I fired at my computer and looked at the inbox, and I saw Ralph Blair judging. And I thought, this is going to be an interesting day. So I opened the email, and, and Ralph said, a friend of mine gave me the link to your blog. I'm trying to remember the occasion. Please refresh my memory. So I sent him a reply and said, 1977, Indiana University campus, during um, a national gay liberation conference that was being held that week, meeting arranged by Letha Scanzoni, mutual friend. And, And then he wrote back and said, if I told you that you were wrong to express your honest, biblically rooted opinion about homosexuality, then I ask your forgiveness for telling you that. Because, he said, obviously, we all have to be discerning and sometimes make negative judgments, and you are right that Jesus does not call us to never express a negative assessment of someone. Now, Ralph and I still do not agree about homosexuality, but at least we agree about judging. That Jesus never said, you must absolutely never judge what he did say is you must never judge hypocritically. So if someone says to you sometime when you express an opinion that is negative about someone, um, you, you must stop that. You must not judge. You might want to ask them, are you judging me for what I said? But if you say to me, I'm a follower of Jesus, so I will never judge, then I would say to you, you ought to follow the real Jesus. Okay, we have just a few minutes, time for a couple of questions, which you may well have um, about a topic like this. Yes?
0: Bringing it back to Calvary in Oshawa, I believe, is that correct? Yes. They felt a fallback from the eternal judgment that they placed on one of the members of their church what would be an appropriate reaction to fall back like that, whether in the media or when you place that judgment upon someone in your church? Or
1: That's a good question. What would be the appropriate response for, for the church in a situation like that? Um, it's a tricky one. I, I understand that the lawyers um, that, the, um, that the pastoral staff talked to encourage them not to, make, not to speak to the media, and not to make any public statements i'm and, and that and sometimes that ha, sometimes that's probably what has to be done because these stories erupt and then they 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 disappear when the next great story arises i'm I'm more inclined to say it may be an opportunity to try to speak in a in a civil and respectful way and 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 somehow through the media remind the wider culture around us that all of us draw lines and make discerning judgments and, and that several people had spoken to the woman about it. Um, she should have understood that she was committing to something when she committed to that church. I I would like to think of it as as an opportunity, maybe like a a learning opportunity, a teaching opportunity. I'm probably a bit naive about about some of that, but still, it seems to me we we need some Christian leaders in Canada who can help reshape the public conversation about things like this, and, and somehow try to help Canadians recognize we, we can we can have our serious differences and talk about them openly. That without that doesn't mean we're hateful and bigoted. Somehow we have to make that point. So, but but we obviously have to be careful in the way we communicate with with the media. Good question. Yeah. Well, oh, if someone asks to be called by gender. by a strange gender term, like if female, you to 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 yeah, did you hear the question? What What do you do if, if, if someone you know, a friend, a friend who is, let's say, female, says, "Actually, call me whatever male name the person wants." I'm really, I'm really male. Treat me, treat me as male. That's a really difficult one. I'm not sure there's there's one way to do it in every case. I think for someone like Jordan Peterson, he's done the right thing in a public setting to say, look, that's a tyranny I'm not going to subject myself to. But if it's a friend, I might well say to the person, look, you need to understand where I'm coming from. I, I really believe for these reasons you need to accept yourself as God has made you and, and not rebel against that. But I, I, I'll, I'll address you in the way you want to be addressed I'm, I'm, as, as a concession, but you've got to understand that it's very hard for me to do this because I really think you, you shouldn't make that choice. So it's I think it depends on how well you know the person depends on what the the wider implications of it are It's living um, for Christ in this world is often awkward and but it's okay to admit that it's okay to admit such person. This feels awkward, I know for both of us It's like that time back in Bloomington, Indiana when the president of the Bloomington Gay Alliance, said to me, would you be willing to lead a Bible study group for members of the alliance? And I said, "Uh, don't you understand that for biblical theological reasons I can't affirm a gay lifestyle? He said, I know, we disagree on that. But we have a lot of people from evangelical backgrounds. and, And it would be helpful for them And I thought to myself, can't wait to talk to the church board about this idea. They already think I'm I'm a little off the edge because I have Pentecostal friends. (laughs) Uh, What what are they going to think about this? So I I just had to say to the guy, look, this is awkward, but I'm not at all sure we can make that happen. And, And it didn't. It's not so simple. Well, our time is up. Let me pray for us as we go. Father, we recognize uh, the need to be wise and discerning and faithful in following Christ in this world. We want to be genuine followers of our Lord, who is full of both grace and truth. And so by the work of your Spirit, make us like our Lord, speaking truth, acting in grace, acting wisely, Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Grant it, Lord, in all of our contexts, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, go in peace.